0: Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell pouring out your serving of pure distilled intoxicating and occasionally delicious history. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Norton, author of 13 works of non-fiction. Her debut book in 2008 was She-Wolves, The Notorious Queens of England, followed by her biographies of Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn, his third wife, Jane Seymour, fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, and his sixth wife, Catherine Parr. She is also the biographer of Henry VII's mother, Margaret Beaufort, Henry VIII's mistress, Bessie Blunt, and her most recent book was The Hidden lives of Tudor women Dr Norton was also historical consultant and contributor to the BBC three-part docudrama series The Boleyns. Elizabeth thank you so much for joining us on Single Malt History.
1: Well thank you very much for inviting me along.
0: Well it's absolutely my pleasure Um, and so to start with uh the biographies of four of Henry VIII's Six Wives uh, that you wrote, and to ask a deeply unfair question, of those four, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves and Catherine Parr, was there one who stood out as a favourite to write about or research?
1: See, this is always a tricky question. That- and Sorry, it, is, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, I mean, it was at least I didn't do all six, and then I'd have six to choose yeah. from.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And I, I kind of changed my mind a bit, but um, because it is specifically about researching and writing about, I am going to go with Anne of Cleves. And the reason, interesting, yeah. So the reason for that is that when I was writing the book of her, very little in depth had been written about Anne of Cleves by that stage. Um, You know, it's kind of, there are now more biographies of Anne of Cleves and more attention, but at that stage she was still, you know, maybe a few chapters in a collective biography of The Six Wives rather than really having her own kind of story told in depth, if you like. So I'm going to go with Anne, and I also like Anne very much. Um, I always try and sort of get it out there that she didn't have a happy life after her relationship with Henry VIII, um, because the myth about Anne really is that, you know, everything was lovely for her. She's definitely the luckiest Mm -hmm. of the six wives, but I think we can safely say he blighted all of their lives.
0: I think, I mean, that's one thing that I think comes across really clearly in your biography, and you're right. I mean, she is the luckiest of those six, but that is not a tough ascot of a horse race to win. Um, You know, these these are six women who had... You know, extraordinarily difficult lives, and I think this idea of Anne of Cleves as having the happy uh, ever after is perhaps a more understandable wish fulfillment from from people that we that we wished one of them would have had a sort of uh, much easier ending than they did. In 2011, you turned your attention to Elizabeth Blunt, or Bessie Blunt, as she's better known, who was Henry VIII's mistress early in his reign and mother of his only acknowledged illegitimate child. What drew you to writing about Bessie Blunt and what surprised you during your research?
1: So... She, again, seemed like a bit of an untold story, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Her name crops up of all the mistresses. And, I mean, we don't actually know the names of that many of Henry's mistresses. He tended to marry women who would traditionally have been his mistress. Um, But of all of them, she is the most politically important um, because she gives birth to Henry Fitzroy. And he, at one stage, looks like he might be being groomed to be Henry VIII's successor. Um, Unfortunately, like a lot of Tudor boys, he dies in his late teens. Um, but at one stage, he was looking at a likely successor. And actually, there was talk of Henry marrying Bessie, um, not on Henry's part, but in general rumours. So I thought she was a really fascinating character. Um, I'm a bit of a blunt or blunt fan. And my PhD thesis was actually on the family. So um, I really enjoy researching Bessie and her family. And there's a huge amount of material out there on the blounts or the blunts. And actually with the surname, I should say, they they pronounce it interchangeably. Um, modern blounts or blunts um, will tell you that their way of pronouncing it is correct, but they pr- <laughs> pronounce it different ways. Um, and we see it in the sources as well. If we look at the spelling, sometimes it's spelled with a W in the middle, which suggests blount, I would say, sometimes it's blunt, sometimes it's yeah.
0: Blunt. I've seen but- that, but it's a very, it, it, well, I mean, acrobatic 16th century spelling.
1: Yeah, it's quite impressive. The <laughs> spelling. So but yeah, so there's a bit of an argument over the pronunciation as well. But I just think she's a really fascinating character. And I think there was quite a lot that surprised me. Most notably um, was the date of well, probable date of birth of her second child, Elizabeth Tailboyce, who um, later on, Elizabeth Tailboys gives her age. And if she is correct in her age, and we've got no real reason to assume that she would give an incorrect age, then it means she was conceived in the summer after Henry Fitzroy's birth, so within a few months of Henry Fitzroy's birth. So it just raises the possibility that perhaps Henry VIII and Bessie Blount had more than one child, but who knows?
0: I mean, I think you made that point um, really well in the biography, because there isn't a lot of, um, reasons that you can think of as to why Elizabeth would have felt the need to lie. There's no good reason, I think. That kind
1: no, of, not, not yeah. at all, I would say.
0: Well, you turned in 2013 to a biography subtitled England's First Crowned Queen. Can you tell us, I mean, you've spoken about uh, Anne of Cleves and Bessie, um, blunt, blunt, uh, to keep both sides of the family happy, uh, being sort of, um, Untold stories. I think that the same is true with with Queen Elfrida. Can you tell us a little bit about her?
1: Yeah, so this was a bit of a labor of love um, going all the way back to the 10th century, the Saxon period. And it was really because I was just fascinated by her story. And I'd studied the Saxons at university and I just wanted to get her story out there. Elfrida, or Elfrith, as she would have called herself, um, is the wife of King Edgar. Um, He is a 10th century monarch. He's known as Edgar the Peaceable. And he's married three times, probably, at least twice, we know, because actually with Anglo-Saxons, you quite often don't even know the names of the king's wives. He probably has three wives. Elfrida is his final wife. And um, there are later stories that Edgar murdered her husband so that he could marry her. And there are also claims that they committed adultery before their marriage. Um, Edgar attempts to push Elfrida's children as yes to the throne over his elder son Edward they're always referred to as legitimate son she's his legitimate wife um she's also a major figure in the 10th century religious reform so in some ways a little bit amberlynn actually um Edgar then drops dead and there's a succession dispute between Edward his son by his first marriage who is less legitimate perhaps and Elfrida's son, Ethelred, who is only seven years old. So Edward succeeds. He is mid-teens by this stage. And a few years later, he goes to visit Elfrida at Corfe. And he is murdered that night um, before he even gets off his horse. So Elfrida is obviously the leading candidate for the murderer. Um, <laughs> all later sources embellish and embellish and embellish until you know you actually pretty much got her poisoning him with a cup full of you know, something horrible and then inciting the murderers interestingly and i I do think she's a little bit maligned is no contemporary source to our says that she murdered edward um it certainly seems to have happened where she lived and it certainly seems to have been carried out by the noblemen around her but there's no contemporary source that actually lays the blame at her feet so i think the jury is out a bit. I don't think she's necessarily the most likely candidate, but certainly this is how we remember Elfrida today. But she's a fascinating character. Oh, and I should say, she is definitely the first woman that we know with certainty to have been crowned as Queen of England, which is pretty special, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good sober way to have. Uh, and well, you've talked a bit about the, the difficulties and with the sources and the you know the, the complex moral issues surrounding Elfrida and you've written about very difficult topics before uh, including your 2015 book The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor in which she revisited a distressing episode in the early life of the future Elizabeth I. Shortly after her father's death she went into the care of her stepmother Catherine Parr who as we've mentioned you've also written about and she remarried to Thomas Seymour. Seymour was later accused of deeply inappropriate attention to Elizabeth, who was about 14 or 15 at the time. What did you discover about that scandal and what went on in the Parr-Seymour household?
1: So it's a really fascinating episode in Elizabeth's life because, you know, obviously we have this picture of her as the Virgin Queen, you know, she's sworn never to marry. But I think what's most telling about this point in her life is that actually this is this is before we have the virgin queen who will never marry if you like you know we're now we're talking about a girl a teenager who has got very little chance of the throne you know she has her younger half-brother who seems perfectly healthy he's really likely to get married and have children um she has a half-sister above her in the succession who is also you know she might get married she might have children Um, So Elizabeth is not at this point really vying for the throne. You know, her best chance probably is either to live wealthily and singly or more likely she'll get married, um, possibly to a foreign prince, more likely to a nobleman. So I always think that's the context that we have to look at Elizabeth in this period. And she's also very, very young. Um, She is too young, really, to set up in her own household when her father dies. So she moves with Catherine Parr. And... Quite soon afterwards, when Thomas Seymour joins the household, he starts coming to her bedchamber early in the morning, um, attempting to tickle her. One stage, he tries to climb into the bed, and he appears bare-legged and in his slippers. So, you know, he's in a state of undress. And this goes on for some time. Sometimes Catherine Parr joins in. At one stage, Catherine holds Elizabeth in the gardens while Thomas slashes her dress to pieces. So it's all incredibly inappropriate. Um, We know about it because Elizabeth and her servants are later questioned and this is what they are prepared to admit which you know begs the question is there more going on and you know they're trying to kind of limit the damage Um, but it's just such a really interesting episode in her life. Um, I think a lot of it is Thomas is obviously head of the household, he's married to her stepmother, he's effectively her stepfather so it's sort of limited she has limited agency with regard to Thomas um Kate Ashley Catherine Ashley who is her governess um slightly neglects her charge she moves her bed out of Elizabeth's room because she wants to sleep with her own husband um which leaves Elizabeth unprotected and Catherine Parr of course um doesn't really step up and protect Elizabeth until it goes too far and she finally sends Elizabeth away but I think What's interesting about it is it it kind of gives us, it fleshes out some of, you know, the gaps in Elizabeth's life. And what is even more interesting is when Catherine Parr dies, um, Thomas Seymour then effectively comes courting. And um, then I think we really can see Elizabeth considering quite strongly a marriage to Thomas Seymour because, of course, he's the uncle of the king. He is one of the best matches in England at the time. So it's a really interesting story.
0: It certainly is. And and that book title there for anyone interested in it is The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor. You've worked on, uh, to move on from books, you've worked on a lot of TV shows, most recently, of course, The Boleyns, which uh, I've mentioned. What did you enjoy most about that process?
1: Uh, it's always fun doing television um it kind of gets you away from your desk away from the archives okay. um and it's really good fun um i'm not sure i like watching myself on screen that much but it's fun to go out and film and really think in detail about the topic because normally you're there kind of talking about a specific thing um on the berlins for example i was kind of there at least at first to kind of think about george berlin's point of view and kind of speak for him which was really fun and quite a new way of looking at the story, at least from my point of view.
0: Well, it's, I mean, I think that was one of the things that was so exciting about the show is that it did look at these, um, at the Berlin men and and the wider family, which is, I just think that's so fascinating. Uh, can you tell us about your most recent work, which is The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women?
1: Yes, so my most recent book is *The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women*. That's the US title, and the English title is *The Lives of Tudor Women*. But they are the same book. Um, it was so much fun to write. It basically follows loosely the seven ages of women, although um, it's quite difficult to match women's life cycle up with male life cycle in the period. So, you know, some it's. It doesn't entirely follow the seven ages of man. And it starts with birth. It ends with death and takes us through sort of old age, marriage, childhood, all sorts of areas. And I tried to bring in upper status, middle class, lower status, a whole range of women. And obviously, you know, the sources are there's less on the lower status women. So sometimes, you know, it can feel a bit like stories aren't fully there but I think that's also quite important to show is that actually we don't always know how the story ends but it can be interesting in itself and it was so fascinating to research um and really in many cases quite uncharted territories you know I would go to an archive thinking I was going to look at something and within you know minutes I'd found something else to follow and I'd just be going through these manuscripts um I wrote an article on it before the book came out, actually, and the fact checker came back and said, you know, I can't can't really find any references to any of these. And it was because actually they're manuscript sources. They hadn't been published before. And um, There's a draper called Catherine Fenkel in there. And actually no one had written about her before. It was really fun.
0: It's, I think that's part of the, job. I mean... It's always nice to get away from the archives, but that is the joy of them when you find these sort of unmined nuggets of information or these fragments of lives that otherwise would be completely anonymous. And so lastly, uh, where can our listeners find you in the vast terrains of social media?
1: So I have my own website, which you are welcome to browse on, which is elizabethnorton.co.uk. But if you want kind of to speak to me immediately or you know to see what i'm kind of doing on a day-to-day basis then you can find me on twitter and i am e norton history
0: uh, and that is an excellent twitter account uh, and well i'd just like to thank you elizabeth for stopping by with single malt history i really appreciate it and i'm sure my listeners will too
1: well thank you very much it's been really good fun thank you
0: thanks to uh, dr norton for that And on the subject of books, I'm currently reading Anne Seba's new biography of Ethel Rosenberg, the American communist who was controversially executed as a spy in 1953, and Edward Rhea Butler's novel Swordland, set in 12th century Wales and Ireland, which I'm really enjoying. Uh, I'm enjoying both of them, actually. I I try to keep a fiction and non-fiction book on the go. Uh, on my bedside table as much as I can. Uh, Swordland is a military novel too with, with really great attention to details. So if uh, the medieval period and uh, military stories are something you enjoy, I can recommend Swordland. I've just finished a couple of books, uh, which luckily I enjoyed. Uh, I, as you know, um, regular listeners will know I've uh, just finished my manuscript for a history of people who lived at Hampton Court over the centuries. And one of the pleasures, I think, when I finished a project like that is getting back to reading what I want in leisure time. Um, it's it's such a treat, actually. So um, I, I found getting back into that after Hampton Court, which I also loved writing to just be something I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. And I'm interested to hear actually what some of you think on this, because as I get older, unless I've been asked to review a book for work, I think if I'm slogging through a book by, say, about, let's say the 75 to 100 page mark, I feel more comfortable putting it to one side and not finishing it. And not just because the to read pile in my study resembles Commons tomb when it was first cracked into. But because I think my reading time has become so precious to me that if a book hasn't grabbed me by 75 to 100 pages, I think there, there will be a book out there that will. So I never would have done that when I was younger. I used to have this sort of <laughs> slightly self-flagellating desire or impetus, sorry, to finish books, even if I didn't um, enjoy them. But do you, as a reader, feel obligated to stick it out with a book once you've started it or not? This month, I finished reading Pamela Hicks' memoir, Daughter of Empire. She's the younger daughter of the late Lord Mountbatten, the last British viceroy in India. And I also finished Liberalism, the Life of an Idea by Edmund Fawcett. I'm hoping to read his history of conservatism in 2022, which is the sort of companion volume to his liberalism history. I also finished The Partition, Ireland Divided, 1885 to 1925 by Charles Townsend, as some of you may know from the previous episode of Single Malt History, The Schemes and Dreams of Lord Londonderry. In this, the centenary year of Irish partition and Northern Ireland's corresponding creation, I have wanted to read and talk more about this particular chapter in my country's history. The partition of Ireland is something which is simultaneously passionately invoked in modern Irish political cultures, yet frequently misunderstood – sometimes quite alarmingly and dangerously misunderstood. Stepping back from the conflicting passions of unionism and nationalism, Charles Townsend has produced a meticulously researched history of how and why Ireland was politically separated in the early 1920s, as well as the ways in which that partition continues to matter a century later. While very occasionally a little dry, the partition is nonetheless an excellent piece of history, and Townsend's assessment on how unionism was misunderstood as much in the nineteen tens as it was in the countdown to Brexit is superb, nuanced, and it gave me pause for thought. I wouldn't necessarily say that the partition is a great book for a beginner, um, but I was glad to have read this book as. You know, we live here a century later with all the consequences of the folly, the heroism, the bigotry, pettiness, greatness, and intentions of the partition era. So that's what I've been reading. Um, I was so glad to get through Partition, actually, because it, or The Partition, because it was, um, Townsend is is very well respected. He's written, um, this is sort of the third in three non fiction books, he's written looking at the. Uh, the build to Irish independence, and it's really it's it's so thoughtful and nuanced. And even for someone who grew up in Northern Ireland, there were intricacies that he pointed out and and noted that I was sort of humbled and 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 really interested in. And it's remark what is really remarkable and quite depressing is the failure to understand the inner workings and priorities of Northern Unionism, the mistakes that were made in assuming that that they would kind of give in and support uh, a unified, independent Ireland. It's really interesting that a lot of the same mistakes were made in the 1910s and 1920s, as were made in the 2010s and 2020s, and also quite depressing. So that's what I've been reading, and I hope you'll join me for our next episode of Single Malt History, when I'll be looking at the 14th century to an alleged love affair between the handsome Gascon knight Piers Gaveston and England's king Edward II. In the meantime, thank you for your time, and I hope you and yours have a safe and happy week. (laughs)